Good morning. Uh, welcome to the Zen Buddhist Temple. And thank you for taking time from family and friends on this uh, holiday weekend to be here with us. Good morning, Mom. Good morning, It's a beautiful spring day today. And it looks like we might get a bit of rain later. But the gardens are just flourishing and lush. And it's time for us to really enjoy the fruits of spring. This morning, I would like to pick up where Haju Sunam left off last week. She was talking to us about elements of universal spirituality. And for those who read our e-bulletin, they were published in the e-bulletin this week. How many people read that? I'm just curious. Okay, a few. So I will not assume that you have seen or read them then. <laughs> and we will uh, uh, do some um, helpful refreshers, hopefully. So this idea of a universal spirituality has uh, surfaced in the interfaith community here in Ann Arbor recently. I think Ann Arbor is not unique. It's surfacing all over the place. Um, Ann Arbor has a group called the Interfaith Roundtable. And we meet once a month to talk about um, issues and opportunities that are common to all religious communities. And our focus this month was on uh, universal spirituality. Uh, but to back up a little bit from that, the reason this is bubbling up is there is a growing uh, population of individuals um, who consider themselves um, spiritual but not religious, SBNR. It even has an acronym. So I'm curious, how many SBNRs do we have in this room? Okay, fair number of us. Um, some um, polls have been done by the Pew Research Institute and identified that this is about 7% of the population in this country consider themselves spiritual but not religious. 20% um, overall uh, do not have any religious affiliation. And if you go into younger age groups, that can be as high as 72%. So the challenge that religious leaders are faced with is how, are, how do we become relevant um, in this uh, day and age? And that's why we're having this uh, discussion. So just a few uh, characteristics of the SBNR group, spiritually, um, spiritual but not religious. Um, they can be described as spiritually curious but institutionally suspicious. Um, many of them are about the present. They have a deep sense of connection to the earth and a belief that there's more to life than what appears on the surface. Educated, liberal, open-minded. And you find them in the arts, you find them in complementary medicine settings, you find them in yoga settings. So these are not settings that you would typically label as religious. Uh, but, but do have an aspect of spirituality. So to appeal to this um, SBNR group, 
also to get beyond our own particular frameworks and our religious tradition. Um, there have been some interfaith councils. One of them was the Snowmass, at the Snowmass Institute in Colorado. And um, at, as a result of that conference, uh, nine um, principles of universal spirituality were identified, things that we can all agree upon, regardless of our religious tradition. That was then translated into uh, more of a behavioral um, understanding of these principles, because principles are abstract. And so we have these nine elements. And uh, the nine elements, I'll read them to you. Uh, number one, actualizing full moral and ethical capacity. Number two, living in harmony with the cosmos and all living beings. Number three, cultivating a life of deep nonviolence. Number four, living in humility and gratitude. Number five, embracing a regular spiritual practice. Number six, cultivating mature self-knowledge. Number seven, living a life of simplicity. Number eight, being of selfless service and compassionate action. And number nine, empowering the prophetic voice for justice, compassion, and world transformation. So those are um, aspects that I think all religions agree with. And interestingly enough, as we had this discussion at the Interfaith Roundtable, um, I heard a lot of well, our religion is ideally positioned to lead people down this path of universal spirituality. We buy into all of these principles, which I found interesting because it almost, it felt a little bit like a competition. I'm not sure anybody intended it to be that way. Uh, but maybe it does reinforce the notion that these um, elements of spirituality are pretty universal. Um, I would like to focus on just one of them today. Nine is too many for me to wrap my head around. <laughs> Even one is challenging. So the one I thought we could talk about is uh, humility and gratitude. And I like this one in particular because to me it brings uh, to mind um, this spirit of openness. Um, so that we can all, um, you know, grow together and we can break down barriers between, each, between ourselves. So humility uh, comes from the word humus or earth. Being firmly planted in the earth rather than overwhelmed and carried away to projections, fantasies, desires, and aversions. And I was checking various religious traditions to see how important humility is in these uh, traditions. So um, I'm going to touch upon just a few. So in prayer, Muslims prostrate themselves to the ground, acknowledging human beings' lowliness and humility before the Lord of worlds. 
um, in Hinduism, the virtue of humility is mentioned in the uh, Bhagavad I'm going to say this poorly, I'm sorry. Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavad Gita. Anyway, um, so anyway, this um, Hinduism says, use it as absence of self-importance, as a divine quality which arises from uh, the uh, predominance of uh, savata. And it's one of the features of devotion and surrender. If you have humility, it's an indication that you have this spiritual quality of uh, savata. Christianity, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Judaism, uh, just as water in its course seeks the lowlands and not the highlands, so the words of the Torah will be realized only among those who are endowed with a humble spirit. Um, Buddhism, the Dalai Lama says, the whole purpose of religion is to facilitate love and compassion, patience, tolerance, humility, and forgiveness. And then Thich Nhat Hanh has this practice of touching the earth, uh, which we may, be, we may do a little of that at the end of the service so you can experience it for yourself. But this practice of touching the earth um, is also known as bowing deeply or prostrating, and it helps us to return to the earth and to our roots and to recognize that we are not alone, but connected to a whole system of spiritual and blood ancestors. We touch the earth to let go of the idea that we are separate and to remind us that we are the earth and part of life. So uh, some key ideas here. Um, number one is interconnection. Um, and number two is maybe letting go of the idea that our lifespan is, is limited. Rather, we're part of something much larger than ourselves. So this uh, definition of humility, um, I think, gets at that idea of non-self, which is central, one of the central ones in Buddhism. So then how do we translate all this to practice? And, because Buddhism likes to be practical. Um, I'm going to start actually with a list by, from Mother Teresa, a Christian tradition. Um, he, here are a few ways we can practice humility. Number one, speak as little of, as possible about oneself. Number two, to mind one's own business. Number three, not to want to manage other people's affairs. Uh, number four, accept contradictions and corrections cheerfully. Number five, to pass over the mistakes of others. Number six, to accept insults and injuries. Seven, to accept being slighted, forgotten, and disliked. Eight, to be kind and gentle even under provocation and nine, never to stand on one's dignity. I think that's a 
pretty good practical list from somebody, at least I consider, um, an expert in humility, somebody who was very humble. In our Buddhist uh, teachings every day at the temple, we recite six right livelihood guidelines. And one of those guidelines is to practice gratitude. So for each of those guidelines, there's like three sub-sentences. Um, so because humility and gratitude are linked, um, I want to give you this one. So practice gratitude. Number one, notice what you have. Number two, be equally grateful for opportunities and challenges. And number three, share joy, not negativity. Now we do not have a right livelihood guideline that says practice humility. But if we were to have one, I'm curious what it would say. So this is in part my question to you. I'll start with one idea, and then we'll see if we can craft our own practice humility guidelines. So I have heard Haji say, I was wrong, I'm sorry, I'm inspired to continue, I still have a lot to learn. That feels like a humility statement. What other statements would you have? Sorry, yes? I should have considered this from your perspective. Okay. Help me to remain teachable. <laughs> I commit to spending time with people who've experienced oppression and indignity. Did you see this uh, practice of humility as we're thinking about it? Um, gets pretty universal uh, pretty quickly. And also is something that can be important to our spirituality. So my question number two is how does practicing humility foster your spirituality. So um, 
Humility and gratitude as an antidote to shame. Correct. Okay. And so that, um, and so how that translates to spirituality is that it, um, it helps that contribute to a peaceful and kind of stasis as a general thought. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what, what I relate to. Okay. It kind of cracks me open. I think what happens with shame or pride is that you cover yourself up. Like shame, you just cover and you, and you go way deep inside of yourself and protect because you feel so bad about what you've done. Pride, you're also protecting, you're, you're like this, but you're protecting. Humility just kind of like breaks the outer shell of that nut mm-hmm. and then in flows so much of just gratitude and realization of connection and it's okay and not everyone, I mean, you're not the only one who makes mistakes. It's, it's like all this connection when you crack open. Vulnerability can be a little bit of a scary place to be. <coughs> I find one thing that's been helpful for me is to um, try to feel gratitude toward people that really irritate me because <coughs> they become my teachers. And I think it's very humbling <laughs> at times. At least I think it is. But anyway, I think it's a. Uh, a worthwhile practice. There was one other thing I wanted to say, though, about religion and spirituality. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't raise my hand when I said, am I religious? Because I follow a Buddhist path, but <clears throat> the path, as far as I have been able to discern, does not have dogma or belief. It's experience. And um, most religions have a list of things they believe in and a list, list of dogmas, which I have not found in Buddhism. So I've kind of differentiated, and I know that there is a, at this point in history, at time in the West, there is a debate about this, whether Buddhism is a religion or, you know, I see it as a spiritual path. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it, to me, it's a spiritual path that asks us to be human. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the universality for me, anyway. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
I just wanted to say that I think you bring up such an interesting point, and Joanne and I have talked about this too, vis-a-vis the way of the Bodhisattva, that, you know, um, when you read the Mother Teresa list, it kind of put some fear into my heart because I see the great movements for social change would not happen if everyone had taken that sort of ideology. And yet, when you look at, I think, the examples of the leaders that we all admire from those particular movements, um, like Gandhi, like Martin Luther King, they were examples of humility. And so, you know, when you look at protecting the earth and working for social change at that level or oppressed groups, um, we can only be effective from a place of humility, I think, you know. And so I think maybe that's a big lesson to learn from it, that, you know, those lists that seem sort of scary to us because... um, they could lead to, you know, um, kind of being uh, battered down and not standing up for yourself can become real points of wisdom if we infuse ourselves with gratitude, humility, and uh, a sense of self-esteem. Yeah. All right, so you just articulated the third question. (laughs) Um, So how do we practice the middle way? a balanced uh, personality that's neither arrogant nor humble in the sense of self-abasement, behave without arrogance, self-conceit, and other egoist tendencies, um, while at the same time not um, being beaten down. So another question to ponder. Mm -hmm. What is the middle way when it comes to humility? taking uh, sure. ideas. Of course. Um, <coughs> I feel like the word for that is authenticity mm-hmm. um, between the two. Mm-hmm. And I think that understanding love, which I don't feel is necessarily, well, I won't go there. Um, understanding love, it has um, a no in it. And I think some of us get afraid of no when we're so spiritual. 
can't possibly say no. Everything is contained in the, you know, in the dark, in the yes. But um, if anyone has had to discipline children, it's not that much fun to say no. And it's not easy. And it's not, or to anybody, I just have a lot of experience with kids, but um, saying no is also something helpful for people to bump into. If we just, you know, I don't, I think that with an authentic no, um, it helps people learn what life is about, I think. And I think it takes a lot of courage and a lot of um, open heart to be able to say no at the right, at, in an authentic way. I know when I was raising kids, it's so hard for me to tell them no, but then I, I, I had to even put it down into when this child becomes a parent, I don't want their children treating them like they're trying to treat me. It's, I mean, it's so hard for me to say no that I have to like put it in another generation. And then I would say, no, <laughs> you know. But uh, I think it's, um, I think no can be under, underrated as a spiritual concept because it's, and, and boundaries. So I'm, yeah. Can you add Mother Teresa's statement to one that he said to accept being disliked and there were several this, do you devalue those words? I'm thinking about the idea of social change, how you practice humility and accept those things and create important change. For me, I think the difference is um, you can accept what's happening to you and defend a greater um, group of people. So you know, maybe it's in regards to, say, you know, women's reproductive rights. It's not about me gathering everyone to defend me being disliked, devalued, or marginalized. It's about accepting my experiences and gathering everyone for a greater good that is about social change and still about people can still be an act of humility on behalf of other people, whether it's mm -hmm. something that impacts you or something where you're an ally to um, protect and support people that are being marginalized or devalued. Or and to build on that and to build on something that you said earlier, um, I, I think that, I, I think you're, you, the word authenticity is really important. And I think that to go back to the way the Bodhisattva that middle way between self and other, I think, is very, is very, very important. And it's, I think that that way is paved through proximity. I, I think Mother Teresa drives me crazy most of the time because, <laughs> because of some of the reasons that you were describing. But then I remember how committed she was to being intimately connected to people who an entire world had said she should have nothing to do with. And I, and I think that notion Brian Stevenson's <coughs> proximity is like the sort of first moment of authenticity in actually thinking about um, other people as, as other people instead of as a concept or a demographic category or, or some object that you're going to fix. Um, and so that, that middle ground between self and other is, I think, easy to come up with cute sentences for posters, but the actual practice of Finding that middle way with other people who are radically different than you and I have different experiences, I think, is um, a lifelong process of engagement. Yeah. I don't know that I really know what humility is. I, I do think that it's individual to a lot of us, 
uh, in that one, the way one person expresses humility is maybe a, a different way that somebody expresses humility. And the only other thought I have on the topic is that oftentimes we use humility to disempower us in that we say, we have, we set up a false sense of humility and we say, I'll take this to demonstrate my humility to others. And that humility can be a source of power and it doesn't have to be a devaluing activity as well. But I think that it, when I interact with humility, I have to be very careful that I don't put up false humility and that I'm also doing that in a way which respects myself and respects others at the same time. So maybe one of the ideas about humility is it's a deep respect for the we, myself being part of. And I just, I wanted to um, also say that the new movie, many, many of you may have seen it or heard about it, um, The Greatest Little Garden. The Greatest Little Farm, I guess it is. I saw that. It's uh, much more of a spiritual journey than than it's advertised as, and they don't like hammer it in the movie. But there's a lot of uh, humility toward nature mm. uh, in that. It's, I think it's when I first seen it, it's quite interesting. But it came to mind when you talked about humility. Humus <laughs> uh, is a very big thing in that movie. And um, uh, a struggle with should I kill, should I not kill, uh, what's next, you know, it's, it's interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay, so thank you to everybody for sharing your wisdom today.